Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are honored to have a wonderful guest with us, who is Greg Elliott. Greg Elliott is an osteopathic practitioner, kinesiologist, and exercise physiologist who has worked with various hospitals, universities, clinics, fitness facilities, and sports teams in Canada and the U.S. He completed his Master's of Science in Exercise Science at Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania, where he attended on a basketball scholarship. Greg is passionate about teaching and learning about latest improvements in the field of exercise science, rehabilitation, and manual therapy. What we're really excited about our conversation today with Greg Elliott is that Greg is the master of HRV, heart rate variability. And we are very, very excited to have a discussion today with regards to the importance of heart rate variability, the measurement of heart rate variability using various techniques, and how HRV can be utilized to help support the health of so many different people that are suffering from so many different conditions. For those who don't know already, vagus nerve function and overall just autonomic nervous system function is monitored and managed through HRV. The HRV is a measurement tool that we use to check how vagus nerve and other autonomic nerves are functioning. And thus, today's discussion is very, very exciting. And we get into some of the tools and specific recommendations that we can utilize to identify where HRV can be improved and how well our bodies are doing from a resilience perspective when it comes to the autonomic nervous system. I hope you enjoy this episode. Without further ado, here we go. Myself, JP, with Greg Elliott. All right. Well, welcome, Greg. It's nice to have you on. We're super excited to hear a little bit about your work and to do a bit of a deep dive into HRV for our listeners. And so before we do, we want to get to know you a little bit and get to know how you got into osteopathy and eventually how HRV really became one of those markers that you were interested in. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. It's always good to talk about HRV. It's nice to start having these conversations where people actually have an idea what heart rate variability actually is. You know, it's becoming way more mainstream when I started to talk about this 10 years ago it was kind of like i was speaking a foreign language when i was talking about hrv and it was almost like things didn't make sense when i was talking about it so it's great that the fact that we have more common knowledge but no it's been quite a journey for me so i'll kind of go through how i got into to hrv originally my master's thesis when i was at bloomsburg university in 2011 had to do it we're trying to validate a specific device to, to measure cardiac output non-invasively for people suffering from different chronic conditions and you know during my research during that time i had to look at you know many different ways of measuring heart function non-invasively and kind of do the pros and cons and so why it can't be used and used and things like that and that's when i first got introduced to heart rate variability but obviously at that time it was non-clinical setting and so it wasn't a big part of my research from there but I came back home and, and to Vancouver, Canada, and started to hear HRV a lot more from people that are kind of really well-respected in the field. And I'm like, okay, well, look, let's figure out what this is out a little bit more and see what's out there. And this is one of the, you know, play around with a few products. And so at the time, there's only very few that were out there. And so I got started with BioForce and Joel Jameson's product there. And because you're super close to me in Spokane, and I got a few devices from him and just started, you know, testing out of people and starting to research a little bit more. And started to see that, you know, it was geared towards at the time, you know, highly athletic 
populations. But, you know, dive into some of the research you start to see that it started off very clinically uh, into what's going on into space science and many different areas that had nothing to do with athletics. I'm like, well, what's the crossover from all of those? And my first aha moments that I like to tell people is the fact that, you know, I was dealing with a bunch of the personal trainers at the time that I was at the company I was at and a few of them wearing it. And one person, you know, had a really low score the one day, abnormally low. And they go, well, everything was fine. I had a great sleep, ate well, nothing really different. Everything seemed to be great. Like, why is the score low? I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea as to why that was low. And, you know, two hours later, literally two hours later, she had to go home because she was so sick. Right. And so like this indicated something that was going on with her body before she actually had the symptoms. And at that moment, like I like, whoa, like this is quite crazy in regards to why did they do this? And, and you know, started to have a real deep dive into all that. So that was kind of the start of my HR journey and started to use it with a lot of different populations. And it tied into well with my vision of what I want to be able to do is I really wanted to help people that are in the special populations, people that are suffering from various chronic conditions and chronic diseases. And my first kind of route was obviously one of the more complicated ones was, was chronic pain. Started in the really chronic pain area, which, you know, as I start to get into to more and more understanding of pain is more that autonomic type of dysfunction conditions, right? There's a lot of the chronic fatigue, the dysautonomia, the, you know, all those type of conditions that seem to people tend to gravitate towards me, where I started utilizing, you know, heart rate variability for those people and to up my skills in regards to helping people with that and more the physical capacity sense. I started the osteopathy school at the Canadian School of Osteopathy in Vancouver in 2015. And, you know, during that time at school, I was able to kind of continue to practice and continue to work and continue to use HRV in very different populations. And with the company I'm at right now, I fit to train in, in downtown Vancouver, very interdisciplinary clinic. We started to utilize this as a team and start to realize that it's a great feedback mechanism for people that are suffering from those invisible type of illnesses. And so now it's, yeah, practice is, is heavy in, in kind of the, the autonomic dysfunction space that we deal with primarily at the clinic. And then obviously co-founded a health tech software company called HealthQB, where we're looking to be able to kind of contextualize more HRV data for people to better utilize for their health. I think contextualizing this info is going to be really beneficial for a lot of people because for a lot of people, HRV or even just the concept of vagal tone and autonomic function versus dysfunction can really just go over their head. And so why don't we do just a very brief introduction to autonomic nervous system. It's something that JP and I have spoken about multiple times on the podcast, but we always like to hear it from a different angle. So give us just the basic overview of the autonomic nervous system, Greg Elliott version. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously all the functions that it's controlling all the functions that we don't have conscious control over, right? And it's either, you know, ramps things up for survival and under threats and calms things down where we're kind of in a safe, healthy type of environment. That's the way that kind of I view and kind of explain it to people is, you know, and, and people obviously resonate with the whole fight or flight and fight, fight, freeze or the rest and digest type of areas. But that that's where I kind of explain it to people where it's the indication of when your body's, you know, dealing with something, whether it's physical or mental or spiritual, whatever it may be, you know, there's indications that things ramp up. And then when you're in a safe environment and you're happy and healthy, that things can be able to wrap down into a nice calm state. That's awesome. Something that we, JP and I have added to that rest and digest specifically on the parasympathetic side is restore and recover because we cannot restore or recover from the stressors that ramp us up for survival unless we get back into that parasympathetic rest, digest, recover, restore mode. And so that's a really important yep. little add-on that we've created there. 
So would just love to add that on to what you're saying there for sure. Oh, oh, totally. I always love the saying in high performance where it's like, you can never overtrain. You can only under recover. Mm, I really like that. Right. That's a, yeah. that's a very common saying in the, in the high performance area versus like, yeah, you can train all you want. Right. But it's the lack of recovery is what's, you know, it's what's detrimental to people. That's, you don't understand the importance of that. You know, people talk about overtraining or too much this, too much that. It's like, no, 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 that's not the problem. The problem is people okay. under recover, right? And they'll use all the mechanisms possible to be able to do that. Yeah. That's yeah. where re rebuilding happens. It's recover and rebuild because it, yeah. the goal of exercise is to get better and to, you know, obviously when you're in a high performance environment, you want to get better. You want to, you know, beat other people, but you can't do that if you're beating yourself. You got to rebuild yourself stronger and regenerate more than you're tearing down. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about HRV as a measure that we're utilizing overall. So what is HRV? Again, Greg Elliott version. Let's go through the initial basics and then we'll dig a little deeper into that. Yeah, it's always funny. I've always been trying to be able to do the elevator pitch in many different ways to what heart rate variability is. But the, obviously the way to explain it is the fact that it's the frequency of which each beat occurs, right? And so, you know, you don't want your heart to beat like a metronome. You want it to beat in a nice kind of up and down rhythmic type of fashion, which is as soon as I say that, people go, what? Like, really? You know, and so it's that's kind of the, the, the big thing I say is that we obviously want that nice kind of rhythm up and down, nice kind of smooth type of pattern from regards to someone's you know, heart, you know, variability of their heart rate. That's my one minute, very quick pitch about heart rate variability. So, so I had just a crazy coincidence. I was reading an article about the financial state of the world right now. And the author was talking about how certain things in economics and in the financial systems sort of ebb and flow up and down. They oscillate their cycles. And he made the parallel to heart rate variability. And he said, what we're <laughs> seeing right now in the financial world is sort of this minimization of variability. The oscillations are flattening out. And he said, in heart rate variability, when that variability in the rate at which your heart is beating, when that becomes like that metronome that you were just talking about, that's usually a sign that something horrible is about to happen. In the case of the woman, she went home, she was sick. You know, it could get worse than that. It could be the precursor or the first sign that you're about to have a major heart attack or you're about to have a stroke, or you're about to have something that's, you know, even if there's anything worse than those two things, I mean, really bad. And when you're very sick with cancer, you know, heart rate variability coming down is a sign that there's real stress going on inside your body that could kill you. So the I just found it fascinating that somebody had made a parallel between heart rate variability and the variability in the economic cycles. <laughs> Oh, that's such... well. It's just funny. The fact too is like now we're getting people in economics talking about heart rate variability. Where before us is like you know with creating the foundations of heart rate variability course with lead HRV, we had cardiologists taking the course. Like, oh, I learned stuff, right? And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean you learn stuff? Like, yeah, this is this common knowledge. So what's going on? Like, why are you so surprised with some of this information? So the fact that we have economists, right? And people dealing with finances now talk about heart rate variability being very commonplace. It's like, nah, it's, that's amazing to me to see what transformation has been over the last 10 years. Well, for the people out there who don't know, let's just dive in a little bit deeper. So you were talking about when you're breathing and when you're going through life, there's changes, natural changes in the rate at which your heart beats. And, you know, if you're an elite athlete, one of the sort of obscure 
athletic competitions is the biathlon. You've got this, you know, you're doing cross country skiing, which is incredibly cardiovascularly taxing. And you're also shooting. It's a, you know, target shooting with a gun where you have to rest everything back down. You got to be able to get your aim. You got to be able to, you know, not can't be having your arms moving and shaking the gun, but the ability to rest and get your body down into that state where you can fire accurately requires the ability to control that heart rate variability. And you do that through breathing. So talk a little bit about that sort of that rhythm and how it and respiration plays into it. Yeah. So the respiratory sinus rhythm and that type of, you know, that's kind of the real measure that, that HIV is all, all about. And obviously as we, you know, as you breathe in, it's more that sympathetically dominant where you have less variability as you breathe out you get more of that parasympathetic interaction more higher vagal tone and you start to increase that variability and that's obviously kind of what hrv is measuring is that it, that respiratory sinus rhythmia shows the indication of someone's kind of overall capacity and, and so my kind of very high level kind of like you know when people come to me it's like well what's the importance of heart rate like why do i necessarily be able to measure it and i said so your capacity to be able to deal from overall stress. Like it's great that the fact that you have, you know, people always, you know, concerned about VO2 max and like these max rep things, like all sympathetically dominant type of activities of how high can I rev my engines type of thing. Right. And I always had a view that like, that's not the most important thing. My most important thing is can we put on the brakes? Can we actually slow down to get into that space? Cause I think that's where a lot of the problems are. It's not the fact of how powerful we can be and how this we can be. It's about, do we actually have the ability to do, you know, get into that restful state, but also get into those revving the engines type of state. And yeah, so talk, from a breathing standpoint. Yeah, we talk about, I mentioned my dog at home who, you know, <laughs> I joke about the fact that, you know, dogs love to just lounge around and my dog's no different. She lies down. She's literally got her tongue hanging out and like licking the tile while her eyes are closed. And yet within a fraction of a second, she can be up barking and huffing and puffing because the UPS guy's at the door. And then 30 seconds later, she's back down after he's gone, back down, completely sacked out, you know, barely breathing at all, tongue hanging out, just chilling out and sleeping again. That ability to move from that rest, digest, restore, literally a sleep mode to fight or flight and back down so rapidly, that's actually more a sign of health than the sign of how much you can stress yourself, how much you can be in sympathetic activation. Because as you said, it's the ability to get back down into that rest and digest mode swiftly, efficiently, fully. At, you know, And if you can do that, then you're super healthy. Oh, yeah. No, that, that's the biggest thing is it's what we can do to cause as little disruption to our physiological system as possible, right? Like for our ability to be able to do all these stressors things and be able to say, hey, there's not a lot of repercussions coming from what I just did, right? And so that's where, you know, to me, that's where I'm explaining help a lot more to that, to that effect of understanding is very similar to you put it very well with the dog example. I think I'll have to steal that one to talk to people about the signs of health, but no, I completely agree. It's that our ability to be able to kind of make these shifts and cause as little disruption to our homeostasis as possible. We'd be able to go out and sprint, do these things and not necessarily have to be able to have these significantly high heart rates for longer periods of time or be able to recover for that. To be able to go up and down in a very easy way, the easiest way possible. And, you know, HRV is a good indication of kind of people's overall ability to be able to get into those states. But the, obviously the complexity is to, to a degree is like, well, how do we 
necessarily improve heart rate variability if it's lower? What can we do in one area? And I found, you know, early on in, you know, in 2013, you had these camps of people, like I said, it's very high into the athletic population when they do, oh, today's a good day to train or not, or am I ready for my camp and I'm peaking at the right time? We had that kind of camp. And then we had the, you know, the residence breathing camp, the heart math type of camp, where it's all about, you know, breathing and kind of getting into those, that nice, nice frequency into, you know, you get into to the, the balance between parasympathetic and the sympathetic side. And then you had the pure clinical medical route where you're kind of looking purely from a diagnostic perspective of, you know, does it do this? Does it do that? And so we had these camps that necessarily weren't talking with one another. And so the reason why we created the course, it was, you know, software independent and it didn't matter what device you had. It was more about the science of just the basics around heart rate variability and what it is. It's indicative, like, listen, it's all these features. It's all areas of life that come into to what's going on. You go through physical your social, your spiritual, and your psychological, all these aspects play into what's going on because they seem to be some areas where people were blinded to. So we, we wanted to create that course to look up all areas of health and what health encompasses and be able to show up like, hey, there may be an area that you're missing more than others, whether it's, again, talk about you know, resonance breathing or be able to manage stress better by using your breath and that's not, but or the fact of you're lacking connections, you're social isolating, or the fact that there's something with sleep is going on, it's about looking at those areas. And so one of the things that we wanted to show people from an HRV perspective is that you can have a whole health picture with this value, but you have to do a little bit of digging to be able to figure that out. I love that. And I want to, let's dig into that HRV space and kind of on the wearable side and where that data really comes from. So we know we talked about the waves kind of ebb and flow idea. I like, for me, I like the visual of waves coming in on the beach, right? They come in high and then they slow down and then they increase in amplitude and then they will come back down. And that ebb and flow is what really proves that it is a healthy thing. And I'm very intrigued to hear that the economics guys and the finance guys are using HRV as an analogy for it. Let's talk a little bit about the specifics on HRV. So we're measuring the frequency of the heart rate, we're measuring that we're not in a metronome state where it's just rhythmic and not moving at all. What are we measuring there? And what are the numbers that we're kind of taking in? Because I know there's different data points that come in from different tech that's being utilized for that as well. Yeah, from the grand scheme of things, we want to be able to look at the interbeat differences, right? The interbeat intervals, IBIs from that. I mean, that's similar, but it's different from the way that we utilize it now, right? So the way that it's traditionally described is more from the ECG electrical signal aspect, right? So we look at the R-to-R intervals from an ECG and it's purely based on electrical activity, right? So that's the way it was done for long periods of time with polar, with ECGs, Holter monitors, that type of stuff in regards to those side of things. It's obviously been more predominant now in regards to wearable space and how people calculate heart rate variabilities through PPG through light type of technology, which is, it's still looking at time in between, but it's more obviously about well, the wavelength of, you know, the blood kind of passing through the arteries, people determine those, right? So it's technically looking at time intervals, but, but two different type of mechanisms, right? So one's looking more at blood flow, the other one's looking at electrical activity. But in the grand scheme of things we want to be able to see is that heart beats, you know, how much time passes before the next beat happens. For a long period of time, the PPGs were in an ideal situation because there's many different factors of motion artifact and you know, skin color and all that type of stuff. We're getting better with those things. It's not perfect. Even the gold standard ones that are out there from wearable tech aren't the greatest, but they're not bad either. And so things are advancing. I remember when I used to do a lot of ECGs in college, 
and past that is that people would come in and be like, oh, I need a stress test because my Fitbit said my heart rate was a 200 and I was just walking around, right? And I go, oh, okay. Like they would come in and they get the doctor referral to do a stress test. And I'd be like, can you make sure that you wear your Fitbit while we do this so you're able to see what's going on? And so they would wear their Fitbit and see the ECG and they go, oh, it's like sometimes to the point it was like 40 to 50 beat difference in regards to that. So that was kind of the early days of PPG sensors and into what's going on. But obviously things have progressed now where they're better, but you still hear a lot of stories that people love like, oh my, I won't name devices, but my device said that, you know, I was just walking and it was 180 beats per minute where it's never been, you know, above 120 and things, right? So we still get some inaccuracies around that. So that's so it's not necessarily the gold standard, but getting better, getting, you know, more accurate. They're continuously testing and producing research, which is phenomenal. But those are kind of the primary two mechanisms that we weekly heart rate variability with right now. And within the heart rate variability field, there are different spectrum and there are different ranges where they mean different things. So if you take a signal, you know, you can start with your ECG signal and then you derive the interbeat frequency changes, you get a heart rate variability. But within that, there are mathematical ways of looking at different frequency bands. Okay, so you can look at the high frequency band, you can look at the low frequency band. And what do they refer to? Because sometimes people will have devices and readouts that give them breakdowns like that. So what are the common breakdowns and what are the common acronyms that people would look for? And what do they mean? Because, you know, I think we can start digging into some of the, what the changes are you're seeing in the immune system and the autonomic nervous system based on which aspects of that overall heart rate variability are changing. Yeah. So the more common ones is obviously the two big categories that are the, the most common are the time domain, which obviously is based on the time intervals, right? And then there's the frequency domain, which is about the frequency aspect of the signal. So the more common ones from the time domain perspective are going to be RMSSD, the root mean square of successive differences, which majority of uh, wearable devices calculate, as well as most consumer apps seem to be, that seems to be the gold standard when it comes to that. And when it comes to Holter monitors, more long-term metrics, you're looking at SDNN, which seems, I think Apple Watch still collects SDNN specific values. I don't know if that's updated with the latest Apple Watches. I'm sure that by the time this you know, podcast changes, there'll be significantly changes with uh, Apple Watches as they come out. But those are kind of the primary two that seem to be the most commonly utilized and reported. I mean, there's you know, PNN50 and things like that, but those are, I don't think, as utilized very heavily in more the general population kind of consumer you know, consumer space. And obviously the frequency domain, the big ones, high frequency, low frequency. Some people can look at very low frequency, but it's not as common as obviously the high frequency, low frequency, or low frequency, high frequency ratio of those frequencies. So those are, seem to be the more common ones. And those they have various indices, but obviously I'd love to be able to kind of open up discussion in regards to what you guys are seeing a little bit more of in regards to the, all the different types of metrics. Well, before we do that, maybe help the audience know, okay, when you look at the RMSD, for example, that's one that's very popular. Most of the devices are providing that. What is that telling people and what's it missing? You know, what is it that somebody should take from that measurement about heart rate variability? And, you know, listen, people read articles that say, hey, listen, if your heart rate variability is low, that could mean that you're about to have a heart attack. Well, we don't want people to be so stressed that they're now going to cause themselves to have a heart attack because they've got a low RMSD measurement. Is RMSD the measurement that they should be looking at to tell them whether or not, you know, they really have a problem or not? Yeah, the way that I like to visualize it with people, and there's been a couple of things out there to kind of look at it when, you know, the incomplete picture of the time domain 
perspective is that you've seen the ones where, you know, you have a reading of like, you know, it's a beast on a chart and you start to see that it's more, you know, it's up and down, right? There's a lot of variability, but it seems to be very sporadic and very kind of rigid. And, and it's not that kind of nice, smooth wave-like type of rhythm that we want to be able to see, right? So that's the incomplete picture of the time domain is the fact that they can say, you can say you have a high hardware variability from what's going on, but there could be some, you know, PVCs that are picked up, or it could be, you know, this kind of more erratic type of state, which is not an ideal thing to, to be in. Right. So, and this is where, you know, take these numbers, but you got to be able to provide the context around this individuals as well. So you get the visualization when you look at the frequency domains, you start to see that, is it a nice up and down smooth wave like rhythm? Or is it the fact it's more erratic up and down where it's very, very inconsistent. So from a very high level, that's why I like to be able to, that's what I see in my head is mm -hmm. when I look at those, those two in regards to frequency and time domain, is that's the kind of explanation is that, you know, is it erratic or is it nice and smooth, right? They, can, they both have high variability, but one's more ideal than the other. Right. So what you're saying is if I sort of, you know, decode this for the audience that isn't nearly as, as knowledgeable as you are, and I'm going to make reference to that article because they actually talked about the, the economics article actually <laughs> talked about this, which is so, oh, wow. so cool. So, which is the part of the reason why I'm asking the question. But basically what you're saying is, that you could have a high degree of variability in terms of, you know, two beats might be close together. Another two beats might be farther apart from one another. You could have a fair amount of variability and the RMSD will give you that score. It will tell you how much variability is. However, in terms of the health of the beat and the health of the economy, the variability could be very high, but it could be very jagged and erratic. It could almost be like you're in sort of AFib, if you will. AFib probably has a really high degree of variability, but it's not healthy. Yep. And so as a result, what we're trying to say is that just looking at RMSD isn't necessarily going to tell you that you have healthy heart rate variability. Maybe high, but it's not healthy. What you need to couple with that is an understanding of maybe high frequency versus low frequency ratios that'll say, okay, if it's smooth, high variability, but smooth, that's going to have a high frequency to low frequency variability that's maybe more high frequency dominant. Whereas if it's not, it's going to be more flat. You're going to have less of a ratio that's positive. And let's talk about what high frequency versus low frequency and very low frequency, what they mean in terms of your health, which ones associated with sympathetic, which ones associated with parasympathetic, because you can have very high variability and still be unhealthily in the sympathetic zone. Totally. Yeah. And that's, this is kind of where we see the, a lot of research done in regards to looking at the correlations between uh, obviously, you know, good variability, good kind of overall health and obviously the high frequency marker, right? So we want to be able to have more higher frequency, meaning the nice, smooth up and down type of measurements and lower frequency, higher frequency is associated with higher parasympathetic activity, lower frequency is associated with or, you know, generally more that kind of sympathetic or more, it has more in indications of sympathetic nervous system activation. So we start to look at the ratios. You want to make sure that the ratio is, so typically the higher the ratio number, typically it's more sympathetically dominant person, where the lower the number of the ratio seems to be more, obviously more of that parasympathetic. So you can see the nicer, smooth type of graph. Got it. And now let's tie this into the immune system, because a lot of what we spend time talking about is the relationship between the autonomic nervous system and immune health. And so you were talking about that woman who, you know, seemed like she was healthy. She had gone out for a run in the morning. She, you know, had a good breakfast. She got a good night's sleep. 
and then came in feeling fine. She just had this one like problem, which was her heart rate variability had plummeted. And, you know, I thought you were going to tell me she had a heart attack, but you know, <laughs> she had to go home because she wasn't feeling well. And she probably had really high levels of immune activation that were manifesting itself or being coming up and being seen as a result of heart rate variability dropping. Let's dig into that. You know, why is that happening? What is it that you're seeing? How should we interpret low vagal tone or low high sympathetic tone? How is it all related to the immune system? Yeah, so well, there's many ways I can go through this, but I'll start with the facts, like kind of more of the obvious facts around obviously the vagal nerve involvement in regards to the inflammatory reflex and the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathways, right? You start to be able to see there, you know, it's huge involvement in regards to the regulatory of inflammatory processes and things are going on. So our body is under attack of some way where we need to be able to be able to recover, repair, and restore everything. We start to be able to see the involvement of this reflex, right? So you, you see that the fact that the, of the decrease of vagal tone is increased in that kind of sympathetic activation, which is obviously indicative of high inflammatory processes in people. So the difficulty with the, well, I'll use the example of this, is I know for sure when we start to see these big drops in people as to what's going on, we know that there's a gigantic inflammatory process is what's going on, these kind of acute drops into to people's heart rate variability there through that or to the point where it's alcohol. It's another gigantic drop that we see in people, which is quite impressive to see that. But yeah, you see sicknesses and illnesses. Like it is very obvious when people are going through something. It's very, very representative in their heart rate variability metrics the next day and be able to see that. Sometimes you see low, like lower indications of heart rate variability the next day. And it could be for many different reasons. But you see like the, the anybody that's experiencing high levels of inflammation, it is a quite an enormous drop in someone's heart rate variability the next day or days afterwards in regards to say sickness happens or something that like a surgery, meant to see something after surgeries, someone's heart rate variability when there's some sort of very physical trauma that's done to people, my gosh, like the heart rate variability just plummets for long periods of time with some sort of, you know, I've had people that have had hip replacements, knee replacements, you know, kind of huge removal of colons from diverticulitis. And it is, you just have to see it like, oh my gosh, like look how much my body's under stress and to what's going on. And obviously that's the inflammatory process is coming to work. Yeah. So it's really interesting that you talk about traumas and you talk about illness and you talk about, you know, other things that are sort of physical damage to the system and how the autonomic nervous system responds to that signal that there's a problem by reducing heart rate variability. And it does it both in the time domain and in the frequency domain. So you see it on both sides. So it's not where one is looking healthy, but the other is the one that's showing it. It happens in both sides. You're going to see it. The thing I find interesting is that you also see it, as you said, with alcohol. And you could see how alcohol could be. It's a toxin. And you could see how that could have an effect. But there's also the stress that we live under, in, especially in the Western world with all the pressures that we have, social pressures, et cetera, that can cause the same thing. If you put a person through a stressful situation, you know, we've talked about it before, one of the stressful situations that where you'll see a drop in heart rate variability is just, you know, race car drivers, you know, the Formula One drivers, when they're on the straightaway, their heart rate variability is super high. When they're going through those turns, it drops down really low. And it's because they're under stress at that moment. And they're really healthy because they can bounce back and forth really quickly, like my dog. But yeah. at the same time, there's inflammation that is driven by stress. 
the stress in our lives drives inflammation just as much as having an injury or an illness. So, you know, the question I always come back to is heart rate variability will show up when there's inflammation. You'll see that change in heart rate variability. And it also shows up when there's that sympathetic activation. Can they be decoupled from one another or are they sort of basically one in the same? And that inflammation causes sympathetic drive, sympathetic activation will cause inflammation, and both of them are showing up in heart rate variability being suppressed. Yeah, that's what I see. And we talk about the mental side of things as well, you know, from a chronic perspective. It has been a early on, it was very difficult to explain to people the reason for their lower heart rate variability or indication like that is due to their stress management, right? There's something in a psychosocial aspect of what's going on. It was a very tough conversation, which is kind of like led to the creation of this company is be able to use data to be able to explain to people like, listen, there's areas of your health that necessarily aren't being addressed. And this is the way that you answer these questions. Like this is you and be able to standardize this type of model, be able to kind of you know, introduce these concepts you know, the psychosocial aspects of be able to be able to be able to get calm in from those side of things. But no, I see those, you know, being very closely related and very coupled in regards to the inflammatory process and, and the sympathetic nervous system. And it seems to be obviously the gigantic drivers is to chronic disease and chronic illness development that we're having right now with this, you know, as you kind of categorize it from a very high level of this, you know, autonomic dysregulation type of conditions and over periods of time and how I've kind of explained to people of, you know, you know, how, people get to these spaces where we have these development of these chronic illnesses and diseases is the fact that it starts off with like, you know, stress from all areas of life, right? It could be poor diet, poor sleep, poor stress management, you know, lack of social connection, all these different areas. And it starts off by being younger, you being okay. You can deal with these things. You kind of go off and be relatively fine. You don't necessarily have these kind of markers. And then over periods of time, it starts to develop into these autonomic dysfunctions that you're seeing. Sometimes it's people get more fatigued, people get, you know, some tightness and some pain all the times and all that, maybe get a little higher anxiety, you know, these type of things that seem to be more annoyances than anything. But to me that like, as I explained, like these are the first warning signs that something is going on that you need to be able to address, right? And so a part of that aspect of it all is that increase of inflammation during the time and the increase of sympathetic activity as we go on with these things. And then, you know, if that prolongs or for longer periods of time, to be able to see the development of these kind of chronic conditions where some people are like, out of nowhere, that this happened. Oh, this person just had a heart attack. Now I don't necessarily buy that too much, right? <laughs> right. They didn't to, just have you know, one. Like, yeah, I just had one. Yeah, he seemed to you know eat right and exercise and things like that. I'm like, yeah, but he's the CEO of a company. He never sleeps, right? He travels all the time, right? He's stressed beyond max. You know, at home is a little bit difficult. He's got you know that's maybe a you know drag out or going through various things. I mean, there's so many other aspects of this person's life that are kind of under the hood that they don't necessarily understand. That it's like outside of the oh, they eat well and they exercise, right? And so to me, like getting back to that aspect of it all, I see them very close related under that umbrella at that kind of autonomic dysregulation. I love that area there that you kind of mentioned under the hood and something that has come up a lot recently in my research and something that we're going to be talking a lot about in the upcoming books that JP and I are working on right now is interoception and understanding what's happening literally at the organ level that's driving the disease processes, right? So just a very quick overview of this. We've got 80% of the information on the vagus nerve as afferent information. It's coming from the organs going up to the brain. 
And this is almost like a status signal of what's happening within each of these organs, right? Liver, kidney, intestines, intestinal walls. And the immune system is sending signals through the vagus nerve to the brain to say, here's what's happening, here's what's going well, here's what's not going well. And a lot of that is actually what we call interoception. It's understanding how things are feeling internally. It's almost this internal sixth sense that we have. Tell us a little bit about if you use interoception in your practice, in mental health practice, where there may be a connection here, because I know that there's some good info there for sure. Yeah, which is, I can kind of say kind of like a personal story around this, is the fact that, you know, I was a college athlete and so playing, you know, basketball and things like that and, and going through everything that a college athlete has with, you know, full caseload and of courses and everything from there. And not until I met my wife, who's a very interceptive person, to start to realize of how disconnected I was, not only from my physical sensations, but from my emotional sensations as well. <laughs> and all those things, she's trying to get me to explain my emotions. or explain, I'm like, I, I, I stumble over my words. Like, I can't necessarily explain it too much. And, you know, diving deep into a lot of the you know, the stress management side of things and kind of like the psychosocial aspect of it all to start to realize how gigantic interception plays a role. So it's actually over the last couple of years has been a huge piece of kind of my overall care for people to understand these, these kind of body signals and understand of their, like these warning signs of to what's going on to understand a little bit more. I find out as a general sense, I think, you know, females seek help earlier when it comes to these things. So they start to be able to see practitioners before there's a gigantic problem, these aches and pains, these little fatigue issues, they kind of try to get them addressed earlier on where men that typically tend to ignore those things as annoyances and you can continue to push through and not till a heart attack or cancer or, you know, something comes on that they start to realize like, oh, there may be a problem and it's not. But no, interception is something that, again, I want to instill in a lot of people of understanding the holistic nature of health, right? And to understand that if they can get in better touch with their body, understand what they're going through, the sensations and recognizing these signals earlier, it's more that awareness side of things, like get them aware of when they're becoming dysregulated, their heart rate variability starts to be able to decrease a little bit earlier to recognize those signs and those symptoms, to be able to address them and be able to stop them in the tracks, be able to maintain this kind of homeostatic state a lot more. So interception plays a huge role into that and in how I kind of utilize it to a degree is being more of the physical side of things. I had one of my clients obviously go through the process on measuring his heart rate variability and and we did our healthcare assessment and interception was by far the biggest problem for him over the long term. So within my sessions, you know, as we go through, you know, treatments, as we go through motions, I start asking, like, how does this feel? Like, go, you know, scan your body. Like, you know, how does your neck feel with this? How does your, how does your shoulders? How does your hands? How does this feel? Like, just starting to be able to make those connections into what's going on from a very basic standpoint. And he's now recognizing when things are, you know, a little more dysfunctional than others when his body's a little bit more off than it necessarily needs to be just by giving those verbal cues around interception from there so no it, it's great that you guys are obviously pushing that side of things when it comes to overall health and understanding from heart rate variability perspectives because i definitely see you know from the trenches in with clients hands on them that you definitely see the benefits of increasing interception if it's something that they absolutely need so there's a, a researcher in the perception field and consciousness field named anil seth He's over in the UK and I'm a big fan of his. He's got a wonderful Ted talk. That's really worth listening to, but what I sort of gleaned from him and sort of put my own spin on with respect to the vagus nerve and understanding how we experience things in the interoception space is that 
we have a brain that sits inside a skull. It's silent in there. It's dark. There's no communication that we typically deal with in our lives that the brain gets. All of the information is coming in in the form of electric signals. And it has to take all that information in and extract meaning out of it. And so our brain stems are receiving literally millions of bits of information on a second by second basis coming in from all over the body from hundreds of thousands, if not millions of nerve fibers. And at the highest level, it has to extract meaning out of all of those signals. And, you know, it tells us whether we're tired, it tells us whether we're hungry, it tells us whether we have to go to the bathroom, it tells us, you know, whether we're embarrassed and other things. And we experience those as a result of the brain creating a perception for us. You know, if you get stabbed in the knee, the knee isn't hurting. The knee is simply sending information about the state of the tissue up to the brain. And the brain then processes that information and says, hey, I'm going to experience excruciating pain as a result of having been stabbed in the knee, which is how, frankly, anesthetics work. You block that signal coming up, the knee doesn't hurt anymore because the brain's no longer getting those signals and isn't processing it. And then you have really weird experiences where somebody gets shot and doesn't even know it. Well, the reason is because that signal is coming up to the brain, but the brain doesn't know how to extract the meaning out of it. And as a result, there's no experience of pain because the brain hasn't attached that brain level perception onto those signals. So I said, okay, let's extract that. Let's step back from that and say, okay, on a minute, a second by second basis, frankly, a millisecond by millisecond basis, there's all this information coming up in the brain. Where's it coming from? And what is that? What's being carried up there? Well, a lot of it is this interoceptive data about metabolism, about immune system, about organ function, all that kind of stuff. And it's coming up into the brain. But we don't perceive all of that most of the time. You don't realize that your, your stomach is undulating all the time until there's a problem. So most of those things have to be filtered out. And so you have these layers of filtration, descending inhibition and other things that sort of sit there as a dampener, if you will, so that none of it gets up into the point of being perceived. But every once in a while, a signal comes up from the immune system or otherwise that's strong enough that the brain says, you know what, I'm going to listen to that signal. That signal is going to make it through the hurdles that it has to get up to my consciousness. And that's the point at which your brain will trigger a few programs that it has. One of the programs might be, hey, I'm going to add pain to that, or I'm going to add nausea to that, or I'm going to add you know, achiness, or I'm going to add tiredness to that. And then you will experience those symptoms. One of the things that I, you know, I sort of came to the conclusion of is that you have people who have long-term problems like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue or you know, these other conditions that all sort of sit on top of one another. And what are they basically doing? They're basically telling you that you're sick all the time. So there's a program in your brain that runs that says, hey, I'm sick and I need this body now to change its behavior to go lie down, go sleep. I'm going to mess up the circadian rhythm so you can sleep. All of these things are happening as a result of the brain's processing and that processing can get screwed up. That processing can get messed up. And we do that in animal models in order to create chronic pain models. And the easiest way to do that, the easiest way to create that is by chronic inflammation. And if chronic inflammation is tied to chronic sympathetic activation, then being in sympathetic overdrive leads to that chronic inflammation. And that then leads to chronic pain, 
chronic symptoms. So this is a lot of what you were just talking about. How can we use heart rate variability to tell over the longer term whether or not we're driving ourselves into that? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's kind of the long-term kind of trending of this is kind of where I've been utilizing primarily heart rate variability with my people in regards to that. And, you, know, you know, talking about that story, when you talk about people with fibromyalgia or chronic pain and things like that, obviously that's where primarily a lot of my early work and continue work is in. And it's quite interesting when we're creating this application, you know, to be able to help people that are suffering from chronic pain and, you know, investors all the time or various people kind of go, well, in your app, you don't ask if people are in pain. And I go, exactly. I don't want that. I don't want them to, to, to associate that they're sick. I don't want them to associate it because that's, again, adding to their condition, adding to their stress, adding to their identity that there's someone that is sick, right? We have to put the focus away from that. And a part of that whole, you know, decoupling in regards to their condition and, you know, obviously what they're trying to be able to achieve is a part of that mechanism of that sympathetic thing. Like, oh, I'm sick. I got to think of pain. I got to think of this again. And like, they're kind of in that cycle of that kind of chronic sympathetic activation. We see that we have that, you know, when our research that we published, we know that people with fibromyalgia, we know that people with chronic pain have these indices in, in heart rate variability for the long term of having, you know, suppressed numbers, you know, numbers that are lower than the control groups. That's for sure. And what we're hoping is the fact that we can be able to, to look at these long-term trends of people and start to look at interventions from a holistic perspective and it determines which interventions are actually meaningful or not. Like to me, it's great that the fact that, you know, in the moment, it's super important to be able to kind of treat, you know, vagus nerve activation. It's great to be able to kind of relieve pain in the moment, right? It's fantastic. I have a real respect from, you know, chiropractors or physiotherapists that relieve pain in the moment, which is phenomenal. But I'm like, okay, well, what's the plan past this? Like how are we doing, how are we progressing, not just kind of treating the symptoms, not necessarily treating, you know, in the specific moment, kind of relieving that, but how are we continuing this on going forward in regards to this intervention? What interventions are actually meaningful for this person? And this is where I kind of look at these, the overall arching of how can we be able to decrease inflammation, decrease the amount of sympathetic activity, increase the amount of parasympathetic activity with our behaviors, right? What can we do outside of interventions that we can do in our day-to-day life to be able to make sure that we're kind of increasing our vagal tone? And so that's where kind of like where a lot of my thought process have been around is what can we do holistically outside of these clinic walls to support people to be able to kind of, you know, live, you know, decrease again, we're talking about decrease sympathetic activation, which then will decrease the amount of inflammation that we experience in our body to be able to live healthier and happier lives. So that long-term aspect, and this is where you got to look at, at holistically from all the biological, psychological, and social aspects that we can do to be able to kind of put people in a healthy, safe, purposeful life that is able to manage stress well. And so we found 10 factors that significantly impact heart rate variability. And we try to be able to prioritize those and assess those because up to this point, what the difficult conversation was with people clinically is the fact that, you know, people who come see me because they have, you know, hip pain for long periods of time or back pain or shoulder neck pain. And, and obviously they've seen every chiropractor, every this and every that. And when you see a bunch of physical modalities, it, it trends to more and more the fact it's not a physical type problem anymore. Right. And so be able to, again, explain to people of all the areas they can possibly do to not only kind of, you know, help with their pain, you know, from the long-term perspective, I have tools that I can work with people in the moment to be able to relieve pain, but how do we get this pain to go away? How do we make your life, you know, your quality of life better, more manageable and be able to, again, it's not the absence of pain, but to the point of make it to the point where it doesn't define you and your life. And so that's kind of like where a lot of my work has been in that long-term type of trends. And so we had to find from a high level perspective, 
what can we do to decrease inflammation, whether it's through, you know, modifying sleep, modifying diet, modifying your exercise or increasing it, look at various ways to be able to mitigate stress, which is, you know, from the psychological perspective, which is so many components, which is, you know, we've addressed, we looked at, you know, purpose in life, self-acceptance, interception, emotional regulation, you know, all these different areas, you know, your community, your environment, your connections with other people, all these aspects will be able to decrease inflammation, decrease sympathetic activity, which we know if we can do that, obviously people live long and healthy lives. Yeah. I love, uh, one of the things that I think is really important is understanding that stress affects different people differently. It's exactly the same yep. stress. It's exactly the same external pressure, but it really is internally how you manage it. One person, you know, two people could get the same assignment at work and one person freaks out over it and the other one doesn't. It's not that the workload is different for these two people. It's one is more resilient and more capable of managing it. The other one isn't. So, you know, it's great to talk about externalities that people can do, changing their lives, go on more vacations, go on doing those things. But it doesn't really address, it's sort of an indirect way of addressing the internal ability to be resilient in those situations. We talked earlier about how when you're young, you can handle it all. When you get older, there's just been sort of this, you know, lifetimes worth of insults that lead you to have a less resilient personality type or less resilient to stress physically or even emotionally or immunologically. Obviously, deep breathing exercises and meditation and cognitive processing of information, all of that stuff is really important. We've talked about the fact that vagus nerve stimulation is a really valuable tool because it increases the parasympathetic directly. It is reducing inflammation through the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway that you've talked about. It's increasing that high frequency band of heart rate variability and overall increasing it. And there's lots of clinical studies. It was a clinical study done with an implanted vagus nerve stimulator for fibromyalgia. We've done work in non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation in fatigue and in autoimmune diseases where fatigue is a really big factor. We've shown positive results with non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation. But across the board, where do you see in today's modern society where there just isn't enough time for people to, it becomes a source of stress to put the pressure on yourself to make the time to spend an hour doing yoga or spending an hour doing meditation. People start getting stressed about that and now you're defeating the purpose or they're sacrificing sleep in order to do that. And it's just, you know, confounding the situation. How do you see incorporating some vagus nerve stimulation as a way to address this issue? Oh, totally. So I've been obviously looking at all the research around vagus nerve stimulation has exploded as of recently in the last like kind of five, well, I mean, recently with science is last, you know, five years, but you definitely see the value in so many different conditions. And so I've been obviously talking about this. Not It was great. The fact, obviously, significantly more, a lot more non-invasive technologies around vagus nerve stimulation. But you start to be able to look at these kind of more, as I talk about, these cases that need results sooner. They talk about, again, chronic migraine type of people, post-concussion, people that primarily that we see in our clinic to be, you know, super impactful to be able to kind of get, you know, vagus nerve stimulation done now rather than taking time to build it over periods of time, the chronic kind of build up of what's going on. 
right? So for us, it's like, that's where we see the value is the people that are really kind of suffering that just like are kind of the bottom of the barrel, have no resiliency to what's going on, be able to kind of get them that kind of jumpstart to be able to kind of get going because they have nothing to kind of grab from. Or like you said, like there's just so many things piled onto this person. It's like, oh my gosh, which one to start with? Or it's going to take a long time in order for this to be able to happen. This is, again, we see the Vegas nurse simulation side of things as people to kind of get people kind of going up and ready to be able to kind of get that energy back and to get into that restful state. You kind of get that nice cyclical type of, you know, circadian rhythm back in these people to kind of get into the nice rhythm to be able to kind of go off to get the energy to do those things. Because it takes, like we always say, change is hard, right? Change is hard to be able to make for a lot of people. It takes a lot to be able to do that. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. So if you can do things to be able to facilitate that a little bit more, I mean, that's the key. And I just wanted to make sure, it was funny when you're talking about the component of obviously these internal processes as to what's going on. The one quote I always love to put in the slides is Hans Selye came up with the quote, who came up with the word stress. He always goes, it's not stress that kills us. It's our reaction to stress is what kills us. Right. It's, it's like, yeah, and I always say this to people. It's like, it doesn't matter. We can all have the exact same stress, but how we all deal with those stresses is always independent. I, I'm sure you guys have looked at it, but that the Department of Energy study talking about the nuclear shipyard workers, you guys heard about the study no, at all? No, no, no. Oh, this is my favorite study when talking about this, about how, you know, I one of the things I do in some of my talks when I talk about what you used to do in regards to interest variability, I always ask people, okay, well, what are good forms of stress? And people go through those, you know, good forms of stress. And I'm like, well, what are bad forms of stress? And then people put down the bad forms of stress. And I go, I completely agree with all of these. I'm like, I also completely agree if I can flip them, that they would both be, right, there's such things, too much exercise. Exercise is good. But too much exercise is also bad. Not enough exercise is, is, is like, so I was trying to play in the words of like, oh, like, what do you mean that, you know, financial stress could be good, right? I mean, to a degree, if it's minimal and it's the dosage of what's going on, it can actually be a beneficial thing independent of that. The Department of Energy did a study. It was done over 30 years. And they looked at nuclear shipyard workers in the United States. And they had a sample size of 60,000 participants. 30,000 people were exposed to radiation on a daily basis. Right. The high dose group is equivalent to about, like, I look it up about two to three x rays per year. The low dose group is about one to two x rays per year. And obviously, there's the control group, about 30,000 people that, that weren't exposed to radiation. And they looked at literally everything. They looked at any cause of all cause mortality, morbidities from cancers to diabetes to this, this, that, how long people lived, how healthy they were, all these type of hospital records. They looked at people for 30 years. What they found out is that people that were exposed to the high dose radiation, they lived 2.8 years longer than they had decreased risk of all causes of mortality and morbidity, specifically in the radioactive sensitive cancers like leukemia. Wow. Right. So to me, it's like, okay, well, like, and I use this to the point of to explain it's about the dosage of what's going on. The problem right now is the fact that, yeah, financial stress, it could be beneficial. But the fact is that financial stress haunts us for 24 hours a day if we're in it. It's constant is there. I'm like, imagine working out 24 hours a day for 30 days. Like that is detrimental okay. to your health, right? The reason why exercise is good is the fact we can turn it on and turn it off and be able intense for a little bit and then completely forget about it, right? We can rest, we can sit down, we can work on our computer. But the thing is that we have the stressors now that are continuously eating away at us. They're continuously there. They're continuously like, that's the problem is the dosage is too much, right? Yeah. Independent of unnecessarily. I, and I typically, I used to quote the, I show a clip of the Prince's Bride with the poison and things like that. But now it's, you know, getting with younger, younger people, they don't necessarily know the Prince's Bride anymore. So again, it's about the dosage of what's going on. The dose makes the poison, that, right? And so, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. The concept of hormesis right there, right? Like a little exactly. bit is, yeah. is it's, actually helpful because it creates that resilience. It creates that capacity to handle it. And it's not viewed as distress. It's viewed almost as eustress, EU eustress, rather than it being something that's knocking you down. And it is entirely dose dependent and it's entirely mindset dependent, right? Where does that person place yeah. that, right? That's something that's negative? Is it hurting them? Is it causing them pain? Or is it taking them away from a goal versus something that is driving them towards a goal because they want to be fitter, they want to be healthier, they want to be more resilient overall. And that's the drive of stress is negative versus positive. And this concept of hormesis is so important and being able to explain that dose dependent challenge there. I love it. So I had this wild hair idea. This has got to be 15, 16 years ago. When we were first looking at vagus nerve stimulation, the first application that we went after was looking at anaphylactic shock. The reason for it was, you know, we've talked about it before, but it was because I had read an article about the sensitization of dogs to an allergen. And they found that by cutting the vagus nerve, the dogs were able to survive the, what would otherwise be a lethal challenge of the allergen. And I had put two and two together from some advice that was given to me about you know, anytime anybody's cut a nerve and gained a clinical benefit, maybe stimulating the nerve might work. And so we decided to go and look to see whether or not we could save animals from what would otherwise be lethal anaphylactic reactions using vagus nerve stimulation. And we were able to do it. It was pretty remarkable. The results were fabulous. It led us into other things, but it's always sat in the back of my head. I wonder whether or not vagus nerve stimulation being used in that capacity couldn't just treat an acute problem but whether or not it could be used to have program for desensitizing somebody. Could you use vagus nerve stimulation to allow a person to have tiny minute doses increasing over time of the allergen so that you could desensitize them? We've never done that work. I think it would be fabulous if somebody you know, decided to do it. I would do it in animals first. I wouldn't jump right to humans. But that ties back to one last thing that I was going to say, which is that I think that when you have a person who has fibromyalgia or has other problems that are chronic, like when you're fighting against the sympathetic nervous system in overdrive and the immune system being activated as a result, which it's bi-directional, but when you're in that state, all of the other things that you want to do in order to get that person into a better state, you're fighting an uphill battle. I mean, it's almost like a sheer cliff. You want to get them out walking and exercising. You want to get them meditating. You want to get them doing all these things. If they're still in that sympathetic overdrive and still in that immune you know, compromised state of inflammation, you're just not going to win. If you can use something like vagus nerve stimulation to shift them out of that state, then all of the other things, now it's like a downhill slide. Now it's like, you know, now you're skiing down like a bunny slope and you're going to get there. So I always think of that as being like the very first thing you want to do is get the immune system, get the autonomic nervous system working on your side. And then everything else you're going to do is going to be easy. No, oh, completely. And that's what I'm saying. Like in what's interesting is that we all have from a professional of our lens of how to best do that, right? Like naturopath may have a certain way versus a physiotherapist may have a different way where I have a different way in regards to what we can do to get people in regards to that type of concept going, whether it's through you know supplementation, whether it's through various interventions or, or whatever it may be. But I completely agree that something that needs to be done to be able to kickstart that. And I think for people that are suffering from these invisible illnesses, these kind of 
autonomic regulative type of conditions that I think of vagus nerve stimulation is absolutely a phenomenal because, you know, just seeing clinically of what we can do to be able to impact heart rate variability, impact, you know, increasing vagal tone in people and to be able to see that the trajectory over long periods of time and what necessarily happens, right? There's certain things that from an osteopathic perspective, manual therapy perspective, we can do in regards to impacting the vagus nerve. And, you know, we just took a course on, you know, two days purely on how can we best do that and through manual therapy and there's various ways that can, you know, some indications, but anything that we can do to facilitate that and the vagus nerve as a vagus nerve stimulating device is non-invasively is a very easy, simple tool that people can do. And, and what I love is the fact that obviously we're getting to more of the commercial type products that are out there because I want people to know if it works and they see great, okay, go home with that and start utilizing it there. So we get people into that cycle. Like, I don't want people to come and be like, oh, Greg fixes people. You have to come in every single time to be able to do this. I want people to be able to do this stuff on their own. And I want to be able to this. And what's great is the fact that the reason why I love to pair this type of stuff with kind of these long-term heart rate variability metrics is the fact that is people sometimes may not necessarily feel the different or don't know if they're getting better because it's based purely subjective. If you can pair some of that or to be able to show some objective markers around, hey, look at you started throw out numbers. If the start with the heart rate variability at 20, you're now at 40, right? You've been doing two weeks of Vegas or simulation. Let's keep going with this. You see how this benefit? Oh, okay, great. Like they get that buy-in at that point because purely it's, you know, up to this point, it's been primarily dealing with purely subjective. How do I feel? How are you feeling type of questionnaires? And then this is why I love this kind of feedback from this longitudinal type of heart rate variability data is to be able to determine are the interventions that you're doing actually working. And we know through obviously through a lot of research, a lot of clinical trials and actually in the field, the Vegas simulation for these type of populations is a no-brainer for a lot of them. Completely agree. Couldn't have said it better myself. And I'm always looking for good ways to say it. So thank you. It's exactly right. I love it. I want to be cognizant of our time and for those of our listeners as well. If you've gotten to this point on the podcast, congratulations. You've listened to one of the best conversations on HRV ever. Greg, this was an awesome conversation. Where can people find out more about you if they're really interested, like clinically on HRV, the Foundations of HRV course? Where can they find you? Yeah, so the best way to kind of find me right now is going to be through through our startup company, HealthQB. So yourhealthqb.com. You can find us there. If you want to know more, kind of learning more basics around heart rate variability, you can head over to the Elite HRV website and search the Foundations of Heart Rate Variability course. Well, we've been doing that for, I mean, since 2016, I think we created it. So it's been, been out for quite a while. And and so it's a good kind of foundational of it all, which is great. Clinically, I mean, and if you're in Vancouver, you can look me up to be able to, to see me clinically in there. But yeah, the best way to do that is through that. And obviously I'll attach all my contact information. So if people have any questions, I'd, I'd love to be able to chat. I love it. And as a former come see me every week chiropractor. I very much appreciate this conversation. I went through that clinical challenge where I just did not want to be that person that was acutely getting rid of people's pain and wanted to really create positive change in their lives. Very similar to you. And so I really resonated with this conversation. And that's why we're on the same team. Let's get everybody feeling healthier, better, and functioning at a very high level from here on out with upgraded health. So thank you so much for listening. Please share this episode with anyone who you think could benefit from this information and have yourselves a wonderful and upgraded day. Mm -hmm.